So good to worship with everybody today. It's a good day. And I'm uh, especially excited to be up here today because the passage that we're talking about, uh, we're going to be talking about today, is such a key, um, important passage in the whole of Isaiah. Um, I'm just super humbled that um, it came upon me to preach this text. And it's a, it's a challenging text because it's so deep, it's so rich. Um, but before we even talk about the text then, I, I kind of feel like I need to give us a little bit of context. Before we get to the text, we're going to talk a little bit about context. For those of you who don't know, we're continuing our sermon series in Isaiah. We're near the tail end, the last quarter of the deal. And um, what we have seen so far in this text is that God's people have sinned their way into misery. I think that that is a major theme in this. As you read through it, it's like they, they sin and they sin and then God does this stuff to try and pull them out or God, like, you know, he sends Isaiah, all this stuff, but they sin their way into misery. And no matter what God says, no matter what God does, God's people continue to rebel and turn from him and distrust him. And if you're me and you're reading this passage, like I'm getting to the place where we're about in Isaiah chapter 50 right now, this place where um, you almost get this feeling like that these Israelite people, God's people, uh, just seem incapable of faithfulness to God. And in many ways, the Israelite people, God's people, are us. I mean, it's so easy to see our reflection in the lives of these people that there are some times where we might feel that we are incapable of faithfulness. And because of this, in the passage in Isaiah, in the book of Isaiah, what you see is the sin of the Israelite people has brought about injustice among them. Their sin has brought about corruption and greed and inequality, all of these things. And perhaps most importantly, their sin has caused them to not be able to live out of their call. That's caused them to not be able to become a blessing to the nations and draw all other nations and all other people into this life with the Lord. And so if you were to read Isaiah from kind of beginning to end, what you will see is this, this growing tension, this growing question that kind of bubbles up inside. And that question is, would God's love or will God's love or will God's righteousness prevail? What is it that will prevail? Will it be God's love or will it be his righteousness? Would God stay faithful to his people and love them despite their unfaithfulness? Or would God stay righteous and allow his people to suffer the consequences of their sin in spite of his deep love for them? What in the end will win? God's love or God's righteousness? Would God be perfectly just and rightly give his people over to what they deserve? Or would God be perfectly loving but overlook their sin and their selfishness? What would God do? And then in the midst of all this built-up tension, we get our passage today. And the passage that we're going to look at today, I think, is the climax of God's comfort in Isaiah. And this passage, it points to how this tension between God's love and God's righteousness will finally resolve. This passage is what Charles Spurgeon calls the Bible in miniature and the gospel in essence. 
And so let's just look at that text now. It's a lengthy text, but it's just so good. So we're going to read through the whole text to see what this text is talking about. This how this tension of God's love and justice will be resolved. So starting at Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, it reads like this. There'll be like five slides. And it reads like this. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had, no, had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make Many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. And man, what a big, beautiful, powerful bite of the word this is. And, you know, just to bring this whole passage, part of this into context, it's, it's the fact that the thing that amazes me is that this passage was written 700 years before Christ. This passage was written 700 years before the cross, yet it points to Christ and the cross. This passage is a prophetic passage. It is a passage that is quoted in the New Testament more than any passage in the Old Testament to describe Jesus' work on earth. And so it is so significant, this passage. And it, this, it reads as a beautiful poem that has five 
parts. And because of the significance of this passage, what we're going to do today is we're just going to do a deep dive on each of these parts. We're going to do a deep dive on each of these five different sections in the poem. So let's start with the first three verses. That's the first section of this poem. It starts in verse 13. It reads like this. I'll read it again. So nice. It bears reading twice. It goes, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. So this passage is about, like verse 13 says, this passage is about God's servant. And in the first verse, we were told that this servant will act wisely. And you know, in the Hebrew, this word act, to act wisely, it basically means to act in such a way as to succeed. To act in such a way as to accomplish a particular goal. And so the servant that this passage was referring to is not Isaiah. Sometimes in the book of Isaiah, the servant is Isaiah. And the servant that this passage is referring to is not God's people either. Instead, the servant that this passage is referring to is an even better servant of God who would accomplish what the people of Israel never could. And that is that this servant would bring people back into life with God. He would provide a way to bring people back into life with God, the original call of the Israelite people. As verse 15 describes it, this servant would sprinkle many nations. Now that language, to sprinkle many nations, it is the language of priestly work. It's a language of purification, the language of cleansing. It's the language of acceptance through sacrifice. So for example, in the Old Testament, in order to bring a leper back into the larger community, like if usually a leper in their community is sent away because they could infect the rest of the community, but when the leper is clean, in order to bring the leper back into that larger community again, a priest would sprinkle the blood of a sacrifice on them. And it's almost as if to say, you who were once unclean are now clean through the washing of innocent blood. And you know, church, this purification through sacrifice, it was not only for the physically unclean, but it was true also for the spiritually unclean and the morally unclean as well. And so to provide purifications for the sins of an entire Israelite community, once a year the high priest of that community would sprinkle the blood of a sacrifice on a place in the tabernacle called the mercy seat. And that act of sprinkling, it pointed to this deeper reality of restoration, that that sprinkling provided a healing and a restoration between God and his people. And so we read here that this, this suffering servant is going to do this priestly work of um, purification or cleansing or acceptance. And according to verse 14, we are told that this true and better servant would somehow perform his priestly duty. He would somehow provide this purification, this restoration with God through his own destruction. That he would provide this purification through his own marring beyond human recognition. That it would happen in a way that would astonish many. 
Now that word astonish, I think it doesn't fully capture the force of the Hebrew word. That word is the same word that's used when you look upon total destruction. It's a word that, that describes it when you look upon like a devastated city, right? It's a word to be astonished. That word is a word that encapsulates the horror of looking upon the Son of God slapped, whipped, beaten, broken, and crucified on a cross. And so we are told in the first three verses of this passage that the suffering servant will be brought low. But then we are also told in verse 13 that he will be exalted, right? That first verse, that he will be exalted, that he will be high and lifted up. And church, I'll have you know that Isaiah uses this term to be high and lifted up very, very sparingly in his book. Actually, the only other place Isaiah uses this term to be high and lifted up besides God's suffering servant is when he has a vision of God on the throne in Isaiah chapter 6. When he sees the Lord seated on the throne, high and lifted up, the train of his robe filling the temple with glory. So for Isaiah to be high and lifted up, it means to be exalted to the very highest place. And that, 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 passage, so that verse, that passage just makes me think of the book of Ephesians where it tells us that after Christ was crucified, he was raised from the dead and he was seated in glory at the right hand of God the Father, that God has exalted Jesus to the very highest place. So church, in the first three verses of this passage, it talks about Christ's humiliation, his priestly work, and then his exaltation as God's servant. And then the next three verses, it talks about Christ's power, but also Christ's hiddenness. So let's see those verses here, Christ's power and Christ's hiddenness, starting in verse, uh, verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. So in verse 1 of this, this part of our, our passage, it talks about the suffering servant being the arm of the Lord. Now, this is a very, also a very specific term. This term basically means to be the arm of the Lord. It means to be God's revealed power. To be an arm of the Lord, it means to be God showing himself in human history to act. And this, this term, it helps us understand what Jesus came to earth to do. It reminds us that although Jesus came to teach, which he did, and, and although Jesus came to call us and convict us, he did not primarily come to tell us what to do. Oh, no. Jesus did not primarily come to show us how to live. Oh, no. Jesus came to act. Jesus came to be an arm. Jesus came to save. And you know, church, that's what lies at the heart of Christianity. That's what makes it so different than so many other faiths, that it's not ultimately about what you have to do or how you have to live. It's about what has been done for you. So these first few verses, they talk about Christ's power and his ability to provide sprinkling for us all. But these verses, they also talk about Christ's hiddenness, 
right? Because in verse 2, it says that he had no majesty. He had no beauty that would make us look on him. No beauty that would make us desire him. And isn't that Jesus? Born in a manger to some unimpressive family in some unimportant town. Jesus did not appear particularly special or remarkable. Not in the city prophesies at all. And even though he came to save, this passage rightly prophesies that he would be despised and rejected and be acquainted with grief and sorrow. And then let's see what happens next, starting in verse 4. It reads like this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was cut, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You know, in this last verse of this, this section, you know, the passage, it describes us, all of us, right, as sheep that have gone astray, sheep that have gone their own way. And you know, church, I think that that is such a powerful description of sin. You know, according to this passage, I would describe sin in this way, that sin is leaving the guidance and the goodness of God and deciding to live our lives according to our own ways. So sin is leaving the guidance and goodness of God and deciding to live our lives according to our own ways. Sin is that bent in all of our hearts that says, you know, I don't need God. I'm okay. I know better than him. I can run my life better. And the warning that we see in the biblical text from beginning to end is that bent hearts will eventually lead to broken lives. Isn't that true that bent hearts eventually lead to broken lives? And if the Bible is correct, so if the Bible is correct, if you leave the good shepherd, if you leave him and you go your own way in the world, you'll be like a straying sheep. You may find your own pasture. You may find your own waters to drink under the world. Nor will they give you peace. You will be free to wander the world, but you'll also be aimless and directionless, all the while separating yourself further and further away from life with God and leading yourself further into restlessness and sin. But then our passage says that God would lay on his servant our iniquity, right? In other words, it tells us that God's servant would do his priestly work, that he would restore our relationship with God by himself, becoming the sacrifice, right? That he would purify, that he would cleanse us from the consequences of our sin by taking all of the sin of our wayward wandering upon himself. Now, that is an amazing thing, church. That is such a powerful thing. And now look, hear me out for a second, because I know to our modern ears, this idea of sacrificing a life to make up for sin, it could just seem kind of Barbaric, right? That idea of sacrificing a life to make up for sin, whether it's an animal in the Old Testament or Christ's sacrifice on a cross, it could seem kind of old and antiquated to us. But you know, church, I actually think that this actually points to an incredibly sophisticated concept. And that concept is if you have alienated yourself from someone, 
if you have pushed yourself away and you have harmed someone and you're looking to mend that relationship somehow, you can never just be forgiven. Right? If you alienate from yourself from someone and you're looking somehow to mend the relationship, to restore the relationship, you can never just be forgiven. Someone also has to pay the price to restore the relationship. Someone has to pay the price. So, for example, and I know it's a silly example, but like if I lend you my phone and you wrong me, you smash my phone up, right? I could forgive you and I would say, hey, no problem, no big deal, it's all good. But someone also has to pay, right? Someone also has to pay to restore things. Someone also has to pay the price to make things right again. Either you pay the money to fix the phone, or I don't live with the phone, or I pay the money to fix the phone, but somebody has to pay to restore. Someone has to pay to make things right. You know, church, any time we forgive or any time that we're forgiven, any time it's true forgiveness, someone's going to pay the price for reconciliation. Someone's going to pay. Whether, for example, it's you holding on to the hurt and deciding not to retaliate when someone hurts you. Like, that's you. That's you paying the price. Because you are holding on that, to all that grief and all that pain inside, and you're the one that's deciding not to bring it out in kind to somebody else, right? Or another example, if, uh, it's, it's when somebody swallows their pride and takes responsibility for their wrong, right? That person is basically paying, pay, paying to reconcile, paying to restore. They're taking the responsibility for what happened. But, you know, if you've alienated yourself from somebody and you're looking to mend the relationship, you can never just be forgiven. Someone has to pay. And what this passage is saying Is it saying that for all the ways that we've sinned, all the ways that we've turned away from God, all the ways that we've wandered away, all the ways that we've alienated ourselves from him, Jesus pays. Jesus pays a price to restore us into this life-giving relationship with God. And he does it by laying down his own life in exchange for ours. So church, don't you see? If sin is us substituting ourselves for God, then salvation is God substituting himself for us, right? If the essence of sin is us trying to put ourselves above God, saying we know better than God, all this stuff, the essence of salvation is God putting himself below us. That's amazing. And you know, church, if that weren't amazing enough, let's look at our next few verses. Let's keep rolling, starting at verse 7. It reads like this. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for our transgressions of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich man, in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. You know, this is a really powerful picture, and, and here's the picture. Right? In order to save his sheep who had went astray, Jesus became a sheep. And you know, at church, it's actually even more powerful than that. It's an even more powerful picture, because the picture is this. In order to save his sheep who went astray, Jesus became a sacrificial lamb. That is the picture. 
In order to save his straying sheep, Jesus became a sacrificial lamb. And let's be clear. This passage is not telling us that Jesus was killed because he was powerless like a lamb. Oh, no. After all, Jesus was the arm of the Lord. Jesus was God, showed up in history, in power. No, no, no. On the cross, no one was taking Jesus' life for him. Jesus was laying it down. Jesus was voluntarily, willingly, silently laying down his life. Jesus, who before the cross knew no death, chose to die for us. And so, no, Jesus is not powerless like a lamb. And you know, the other way that Jesus is not like a lamb is that he fully knew what he was doing. Jesus fully knew what he was doing. Jesus was fully aware of what was happening. You know, church, usually a lamb is silent and a lamb is peaceful as they are led to the slaughter because they are oblivious to what's going on. They have no idea what's going on, and so they're peacefully going along with everything. But Jesus, he knew it all. If this prophetic passage is true, way before the cross, Jesus knew what was going to happen. Jesus knew. He knew the suffering. He knew the sorrow. He knew all of the things that would come with his priestly role, but he still went forward to the cross. And then verse 9, it points so powerfully to some of the key details around Jesus' crucifixion, where he laid down his life like a sacrificial lamb for us. Details like the fact that even though he was found guilty, he was an innocent man because there was no deceit in his mouth. That's what this passage says. You know, before Jesus was condemned to the cross, the Roman governor Pilate, he declared Jesus' innocence not once, not twice, but three times. And the leader of Galilee, Herod, he could not find anything to accuse Jesus of. He was innocent. There was no deceit in his mouth. And then Jesus ended up making his grave with the wicked. He was crucified as a criminal, with criminals on either side of him. And then after his death, he was claimed by a rich man, a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. And he was gifted his and placed in his tomb. And so, church, I hope you're starting to see, if you haven't, started, haven't already seen, is that it's very, very hard to ignore the parallels of this passage and the life of Christ. It's very difficult to ignore the parallels that we find in this scripture here and the life that Jesus lived, the accounts that we have of Jesus' life. In fact, the way that some skeptics, some disbelieving Bible scholars have tried to get around the prophetic nature of this text, the, the only way that they have found to get around the prophetic nature of this text is to claim that Jesus must have been aware of this passage and then for whatever reason, he must have modeled his whole life and death after this passage, right, to fit this passage. Now, firstly, I think it's kind of unclear as to why you would want to do that. to to suddenly become a man of sorrows. But secondly, it's also very hard to do. It's very hard to be that deceptive, especially if according to verse 9, you're supposed to be a person without any deceit in your mouth, right? But then, so the parallels are there. And then let's read again how the servant song ends, starting in verse 10. It reads like this. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. 
When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. You know, in the, these last few verses, what we see is the victory of Christ's resurrection. That after Christ willingly takes on the sin of the world onto himself, and after he is cut off from the land of the living, after his death, we are told in the midst of his exaltation, in the midst of his lifting up, he will be given a portion of what is rightfully God's. He will be given spoils for his victory over sin and death. And we, the many, in verse 12, the many that he has made intercession for, we will share in this victory. We will somehow receive privilege through him and his new status. I think this passage hints at this glorious fact that's revealed in the New Testament text that we who once strayed from God as sheep will be returned to God through Christ as his children. That we who once strayed from God as sheep will be returned to God through Christ as his children. Church, do you see the revolutionary nature of this passage? How the reality of it can change absolutely everything if it is true. Hundreds of years before the cross, hundreds of years before Christ, hundreds of years before God stepped into human history, this passage tells us how God would resolve the tension of his love and his justice. On the cross, we see justice served, right? We see the full weight and, and co cost of our sin paid and accounted for. But on the cross, we also see a love so divine because on the cross, we see that it's Jesus that pays the price to restore. It's Jesus that pays the price to reconcile. The cross is where the tensions of God's love and his justice meet and they resolve in this beautiful, wonderful gift of grace. Church, I, I pray that we might receive that gift today, that those of us who have not yet received that gift might receive it, might claim it for themselves. And you know, church, what I love about this passage is that it gives us this picture of God's wisdom, does it not? It gives us this picture of God's perseverance that long before the world even heard of the cross, God was working on a way to reconcile himself with his people. That long before Jesus even came into the world as a baby in a manger, his eyes were fixed on you and his eyes were fixed on bringing you back into life with God, even if that meant he would have to die. Church, I think that that's the ultimate comfort in Isaiah. That's the ultimate comfort because when you're sitting there and you're realizing that you're more like the Israelite people than you would like to think because it, because it answers this question, what do you do in those moments of clarity when you rightly despair? 
right? When you know you're not good enough, when you're just like an Israelite yourself, when you know that you are not pure, when you know that your motivations are mixed at best, when you know that God is holy and good and just and you are just so far away from that, what do you do? Well, church, this passage tells us that when you realize that your arm is not strong, when you realize that your arm is not able enough to save you, this passage tells us to take comfort in the arm of the Lord, in the arm who is strong and gracious and compassionate and so very mighty to, be, to save. This passage is a reminder that in the midst of all the hurt and the wrong brought about by our wandering, Brother Jesus came to find us and bring us home and save us. And in the midst of all of our hunger and our longing from trying to make our own way, Father God has been preparing a place at his banqueting table all this time and waiting for our return. And so, church, this week, I pray that we might see our need. I pray that we might see our need so that we might find comfort in the grace of God. I pray that we might find our inability in our own hands to save so that we can take Christ's hand and follow him so that he might change us by the power of his Holy Spirit so that he might lead us home to the arms of our everlasting Father. Let us pray for those things. So, Heavenly Lord and Gracious Father, we thank you that your grace and your love is so great and so vast beyond measure that it can only be touched upon by the most beautiful of poetry and the most wonderful of songs. We thank you that your magnificence and your glory is so wonderful, it can only be glimpsed ever so slightly in those moments of clarity and those moments of insight that we have in our day-to-day -day lives. But Lord, I pray that we as a community can grow to have eyes to see and ears to hear more and more of who you are so that we might delight in who you are, so that we might rest in who you are, so that we might know of your deep love and your deep grace is not only this pool that sits there stagnant and shallow, but it is a deep, deep love and grace, and it is for us. May we be a community that comes to that pool and drink deeply from it, knowing that you are our Lord and our good provider. All of these things we pray in your Son's most holy name. Amen.